It is uh, every week. I say lovely, lovely to see you here. Just give me a second to set up my many things. Do keep your Bibles open if you... Yeah, you all have done. Well done. Let's pray once again. Father God, we thank you so much for this, your word. Thank you that uh, you have this word for us to hear this morning. Father, I pray that the Spirit who both authored, who authored these words would also be at work in our hearts to receive and to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Ofsted. Teachers, I'm sorry if I've just brought you out in a cold sweat. For, for those who don't know, Ofsted, uh, people who come into schools and inspect and then give the school various ratings of how they're doing in different things. And when schools are told that Ofsted is coming, when they know that it's coming, they, they don't know the exact date. I think this is right, teachers. They don't know the exact date, but they know it's coming soon. And this sends the school into a, a tizzy. They, everything is running around, make sure we're ready for the inspection. Are they ready to come? Are they prepared for the inspectors? The question for us this morning is, are we prepared? Are we prepared for Jesus and his salvation? Are we ready for Jesus and his salvation? Now this morning in this room and uh, watching at home, I think there'll be at least kind of three categories of people. There'll be people who aren't prepared for Jesus, aren't ready for his salvation. And they know they're not. Maybe they're still very new to things of Jesus. You don't quite know what he's about and you've heard this salvation, but what does that mean? How do I get it? Then there'll be many of us who are prepared for this salvation, are ready for Jesus. And we've been Christians perhaps for a while. But there'll be a third category too. There'll be people who think they are prepared, but aren't. And that's the real challenge for us, perhaps this morning. And that's the real warning for us, particularly as you see how categories two and three could be easily combined. We think we are prepared. Because this morning, John was primarily speaking to people who thought they were prepared. They thought they were ready for God, for his salvation. And so this morning, if you are not prepared for salvation and you know it, I think this is going to be really helpful for you to see a little bit more of what salvation is and to know what it means to be prepared. If we are, well, the way we carry on as a Christian is the way we start. So it's going to be a vital reminder for us as well. But it could be a life-saving message for some who think they're prepared and yet aren't. Luke, in his typical historical style, introduces us and sets these events in, in real-life history with these various names of political and religious leaders in verses 1 and 2. And this morning we're back with John. You remember three chapters 1 and 2, John and Jesus have been interwoven. Their stories have combined. And at the end of chapter 1, we left off with John in the wilderness, waiting for the day when he was going to make his public appearance to Israel. And now that time has come. So in verse 2, the word of God comes to John. John receives that word, and then verse 3, he then preaches that word. And verse 3, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance 
for the forgiveness of sins. John the prophet, John the preparer, is getting the people prepared for Jesus, prepared for salvation. In case we hadn't picked up that point, Luke reminds us, and he uses a quote from Isaiah to explain it. That's what we find in verses 4 to 6. He, Luke tells us that John is this preparer, this voice in the wilderness crying, verse 4, prepare the way of the Lord. Be ready, be prepared. And then we get these kind of strange idea here of valleys being filled, mountains and hills brought low, crooked paths becoming straight, rough, uneven places becoming level. Apparently it was custom in those days for uh, perhaps a king or a victorious general uh, as they were returning, people would literally go ahead of them and like, kind of fill in the valleys and knock down hills and straighten roads just to kind of make their path straight and easy. And here we see John's job is to get people ready for the Lord's coming with salvation. But how is it, how is it that John then gets the people ready? How did he get them ready? How does he get, help get us ready for Jesus and his salvation. Well, the straight path and the level roads that the Lord is going to travel along and bring salvation is the road of repentance. That's why John calls the people to repent. We saw that already in verse 3. He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Later on in verse 8, when he's, he's actually preaching to the crowd, he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And so here's our, our big first uh, point this morning, is, is repent. How are we prepared for salvation? Well, repent. What does that mean? Well, repentance is, is the idea of a U-turn, a, a change in direction. I was going one way, and I'm now going another so it's a very silly, trivial example, but I used to hate coffee. Couldn't stand stuff. I like the smell of it. Couldn't stand the taste of it. And so one day, I'm going I'm to start drinking this. I love the smell. I'm going I'm to get there. So I had a change in direction. I started to drink it. And as I started to drink it, I enjoyed it more and more and more. And this week, Mark was sending me silly YouTube videos of how to brew the perfect cup of coffee and the like. Uh, but I was loving it because I had that change in direction. And that has that change in thinking in mind of I don't like coffee, I, I do like coffee, has, has corresponded in action as well. But John here is preaching to repent, to change direction. And did you see in verse 3, though, that connected to his preaching of repentance was the idea of baptism. He had, as it were, a kind of visual aid to help his preaching. So there's this baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and he was literally baptizing people in the Jordan River. Uh, one preacher described this baptism, I think, really helpfully, uh, like this. This baptism was a bath and a birth. A bath and a birth. Okay, he takes the idea, this comes from Ezekiel 36, if you want to look at that chapter uh, later on. But it, first thing I do is it's a bath. When you're going down, being baptized in the waters, it's washing clean of sins, washing clean of sins. And there's also this idea of birth, of bringing new life, of washing the old life away and starting again. And it, the idea of baptism follows that. You know, you go down under the water, picturing death coming up to new life. 
Now, th this wasn't the same baptism as Christian baptism today, but there are crossovers. But that is what John was doing. He's proclaiming repent, and as a sign of that, be baptized. So if you were there in the Jordan, you're hearing this message, and you heard this call to repentance, we'll look a bit more at it later on, you heard that call and you're convicted of your need to change, how could you show that? Well, you could go forwards and be baptized, picturing this bath washing clean, this birth of new life, this commitment to change your ways and live for God. To be prepared for salvation, you must repent. Now let's come to kind of John's preaching. He starts off in verse 7. I don't know how you would respond this morning, right? If I said, good morning, you bunch of snakes. What are you doing here? What do you warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's not that kind of gentlest of introductions or opening lines, is it? He's picturing them as these bunch of snakes who are slithering out of their holes to try and avoid a fire. Now, growing up in the kind of heyday of Steve Irwin, I quite like snakes. But, but it's not very... Uh, it's quite offensive if I were to call you a bunch of snakes, right? And it, it was no less offensive in those days. It's a shocking, open, shocking opening line, but it's there to grab them, to grab their attention. You know, people were flocking to John here. And I can imagine a fair number of them coming along thinking, oh, this is a bit of a nice day out, a bit of a jolly by the river. I might go for a quick dunk, do my religious kind of tick box exercise. John is like, no, 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 no. You, you don't get away with that lightly. He, he, he deliberately shocks them to grab them. And he's saying, look, something is seriously, seriously wrong here. You're God's people, but you're not living as that. You know, you're meant to be fruitful. As God's people, you're meant to show that in your lives. And twice we get that idea of, of, of fruitfulness. So verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And then in verse 9, uh, John uses this imagery of a tree. And he says, look, this tree should be bearing good fruit, and if it's not, it's going to be cut down. You see, the people then had, were God's people, in a sense, but they were disregarding God, which flowed over into mistreatment of each other. Without repentance... Without bearing fruit, they're not prepared for salvation. They won't receive it. So repentance is this, this turn, this, this changing. And I think it's, it's, we can see it in two ways. Firstly, it's a changing of mind. It's firstly, it's the recognition, this is the starting point, recognizing that we need to repent, that we need to have this change of direction. As I said, John was speaking here to, to God's people. But here they illustrate a, a humanity's natural inclination to be self-excusers. So have a look down at verse 8 again. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And John is kind of, can almost hear their thoughts. He knows what their response is going to be. So verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. You see, there then, they had this great reliance on the, on the fact that they were children of Abraham. They were his physical descendants. And, and he can imagine saying, oh, yeah, yes, the repentance, but we're Abraham's children. Uh, but they, they had this unhelpful idea that, that that privilege meant entitlement. Since I was 
a descendant of Abraham, therefore I was entitled to God's blessing. John's saying, no, 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 no. Just because you were privileged, yes, you were privileged, but that doesn't mean you're entitled. And that self-excusing attitude, it's the attitude of yes, but. Yes, but. Yes, some people, yes, those Gentiles, they need to repent, but, but I'm a child of Abraham. And I think we can be just as good with that self-excusing. I'm so sorry that I was rude to you. It's just been a really stressful day. I'm excusing. Because that self-excusing, it it keeps personal responsibility uh, at bay. It it denies that there's a real problem, at least with me. And spiritual privilege is their, their big problem. Spiritual privilege can be a major excuse for us. Look, yes, people out there, they need to repent, of course. But my parents were Christians, and their parents were Christians. So so I've never done any of those things. Yes, repentance is needed when I first become a Christian, but I've been a Christian my whole life now. Repentance, the starting point, is seeing the need for repentance, not making excuses. But that, that repentance which starts in the mind then turns to repentance in actions. The response of the crowd seems pretty positive, doesn't it? Um, have a look down at verse 10, first of all. We get these three groups of people who, who really seem to be convicted. So verse 10, And the crowds asked him, What shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do Likewise. Then next to tax collectors in verse 12. Tax collectors who aren't kind of known and weren't known for their repentance, but tax collectors also came to him to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. You see, tax collectors in those days were um, were considered quite rightly so as, as kind of almost like the scum of the earth. They were uh, collect, collecting the taxes from the people, getting more than they owed to kind of line their own pockets, and then gave those taxes to the Romans, who were kind of collaborators. But they, they were known to be greedy, to be, to be thieves skimming off the top. And he says, no, no, change, repent. Don't collect more than you're authorized to do. Then verse 14, soldiers also, probably Jewish militia here, um, but soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. Soldiers in those days weren't paid very well. They kind of got the bare bones salary to keep them alive. And so the temptation was there was to use the position and power that they were in to extort more money. You you see that that change in, in mind and action transfers into change in behavior, real, practical, daily repentance. This isn't a kind of moral touch-up either. You know, like airbrushing, you just kind of, on the computer, you can brush out a few wrinkles or whatever. This isn't just a kind of moral airbrushing, just touch up a little bit. No, this this is deep-rooted, real-life repentance. Did you notice, just in those verses that we read, the amount of times the word do came up? The crowds, verse 10, crowds came to him and said, what shall we do? John answered uh, right at the end there, 
do likewise. Again, the tax collectors came to him and said, Teacher, what should we do? And it comes again and again and again. Do, do, do. Repentance is practical. Live differently. Repentance represents a new, daily, fruitful way of living. But also we see here repentance is a deeply personal thing. For these three different people, uh, groups of people, John had three different ways of repentance. And likewise, repentance for you and for me is going to be very different. There is no one-size-fits-all. Do X, Y, Z, you have repented, sorted, done. Interestingly, these three acts of repentance that John calls them for, they're all connected to money. Money, money, money. Abba sang it. John got there first. Three things. Money, money, money. So firstly, you had the crowds. Look, look. Don't be greedy, be generous. Don't be selfish, be generous. If you've got more than you need, give with those who don't have. Then you had the tax collectors. Look, don't strive for more. Skimming, being... um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Not being... Someone help me out. uh, Legitimate, that's not the word. It'll come to me in a minute. Uh, But but they they were... Corrupt. Thank you. There we go. Stop that corruption for, for, for money. And, and then those soldiers, look, be content with what you have. Don't strive for more. You know, the, our, our wallets are very good indicators of our spiritual lives too. Are we greedy or generous? Are, are our lives dominated by a searching, a hungering, a striving for more and more and more. Repent. Real, practical ways. Repent. Go through your finances. Pray. Say, Lord, what should I do with the resources that you have given me? How can I be generous? Show me what generosity would look like for me. How can I give generously to to church and the work of the gospel? Or perhaps you see a brother and sister in Christ in real need. Stop living by the what-ifs. Oh, yeah, yeah, I have two, but, but what if number one breaks? Be generous. Stop striving endlessly for more. If you're self-employed, pay your taxes. If you're employed, work hard. Don't start late and knock off early. Don't equally live at the office. Striving, striving, striving. Get home, spend time with your family. Get time, spend time serving in church. Repent. Real, practical repentance. Now that area of money is the one that John picked up on and is a huge one for us today. But maybe right now you're very aware of something completely different, a very different area. Actually where repentance is needed. Where real, practical life change is needed where you've been keeping God at arm's length. Now you may well be, I hope you are, feeling challenged like I have been. But I want to say, here's the real big punch. Okay? Repentance must be sincere. Repentance must be sincere. So who's John speaking to? Okay, we've, we've said he's speaking to God's people, yeah. He's speaking to God's people. But see verse 7, specifically Who is John speaking to? He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. 
He's speaking to people who have come, like traveled a distance, right? They've not walked five minutes around the corner to church. They've traveled out into the wilderness to be baptized by him. They wanted the forgiveness of sins. But they didn't want to give those sins up. Yeah, I'm all up for being baptized. I'm all up for being dunked in the Jordan. I'll have that forgiveness of sins part and then I'll carry on about my daily life. John says, no. You need to repent. They were up for this, this religious act, but they weren't so keen on a change of life. And John doesn't let them get away with that. How about you? How about me? We're up for forgiveness, right? I'll take forgiveness. I'll take the heavenly home that Eleanor was talking to us about. Well, you've got to be up for giving up those sins as well. God can't be fooled. God can't be fobbed off with a kind of religious exercise. Repentance must be sincere. And also, just a, a very quick warning, just to note, as you jump down to the end of verse 19, but Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. We, we haven't got time to go into it there. But you see, he heard this message, and he shut it down. He locked John up. Repent. Repent sincerely. Don't keep repentance at arm's length, either through insincerity or just a total rejection. But response from the crowds, as we said, is generally positive. And they're excited. So verse 15, and the people were filled with expectation. And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. John is very quick to say, no, no, no. It's great. They're, they're like, oh, this is a brilliant message. We've been waiting for the Messiah. Perhaps here he is. This is the one who's bringing salvation. John says, no. Repentance is this preparation for salvation. It is not salvation itself. Now, get this, repentance requires personal decision, okay? We each individually have to commit to real daily life, genuine repentance. But that is not enough. John was the preparer. John can call them to repent. I can call you to repent. We can commit to repent. But repentance doesn't have the power to take away sin. For that salvation, we need Jesus. And so here's our second point. Repent, firstly. Secondly, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, very simply. John here, he says, look, I am not the main event. I am the warm-up act. You know, if you go to a gig, you, the, the, the main person you're going to see doesn't just come on right at the beginning. You usually have one, maybe two Maybe three warm-up acts to get people ready. And John says, look, I'm the warm-up act. I'm here to get people ready for the main events. But see what he says in verse 16. John answered them, this question, like, are you the Christ? John answered them saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What an incredible thing for John to say. Okay, John, we, he's been given a real good build-up through these first two chapters. He's described as the greatest uh, and, uh, of um, people born of, of women. He, he's this prophet. And yet here he says he is not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. So you, know, like, you kind of look at that, you go, it's not particularly pleasant. This is a kind of modern picture. It wouldn't be a very pleasant thing for us to, to take off his sandals here. Well, back in those days, remember, like, no roads, kind of working through, walking through dust and dirt. Feet would have been significantly worse even than these. And it was regarded as such a menial task that even Jewish slaves wouldn't do this. That was reserved for the Gentiles. And John, the great John, he says, look, I'm not even worthy to do that for Jesus. I am not worthy to do the most menial and degrading job there is to Jesus because of how great he is. Why? What makes Jesus so much better? Well, firstly, Jesus is mightier. Do you see, that's how he describes in verse 16, he who is mightier than I. That carries the idea of prestige. He is so infinitely greater and better than I am. But also, the particular contrast is this baptism. Now, it's interesting, John, we call him John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist. And, but he says, well, Later on, he'll be known by his, this, this baptism. But his baptism is vastly inferior. But he says, look, I, I baptize you with water. I get you wet. This baptism is, is only pointing to the reality, which is Jesus. And the baptism that he brings, the flooding of the Spirit. Again, this is Ezekiel 36. You want to look it up. The flooding of the Spirit comes into uh, our hearts. To, to, to actually do those things I said earlier. You remember the bath and the birth? John's baptism just pictured those things. Jesus, him coming and uh, bringing the Spirit, does the reality of those things. You see, no dunking in water can wash from the inside out. No, it washes the outside. But Jesus' baptism, the sending of the Spirit, washes from the inside out, bringing forgiveness, cleansing from those sins. And so that, that's the bath. And then the birth, this new life that Jesus brings, that new spiritual life, as forgiveness of sins has come and this new life comes. Jesus is the one who brings that. We are called to repent. But Jesus, we've got to look to Jesus as the one who can, will ultimately make us clean and bring this new life. Just as we're finishing, two, two, two more things as we finish. First one is, see the need, don't delay. See the need, don't delay. Have a look at verse 17. John declares of Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hands to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Here's the imagery. Yes, Jesus is this one who brings salvation, but he is also the judge. So yes, he is going to gather and save his people, but the chaff, those who are unrepentant, who are, who are unrepentant, they're going to burn with unquenchable fire. There is real judgment to come for those who don't repent. 
is vital that we do so. We find it there, but actually three times, uh, at least through these verses, we, we find John talking of this judgment. It comes in verse 7, and it comes in, in that imagery of verse 9 as well, that tree, you know, if that tree isn't bearing fruit, the axe is laid at its root, it's going to be chopped down and burnt in fire. Repentance is necessary, we must do it. John tells them, and he tells us, look, the situation is perilous. The stakes are too high. That's why he doesn't pull his punches. He says, repent. He says, look to Jesus. And and don't delay. If you do have a look down at verse 9, you say, uh, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. We we don't know when our time's going to come. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back. What a great excuse that is of so many. I'll do that later. I'll repent later. I'll have my fun now and I'll repent later. No, don't delay. We don't know when that judgment is coming. In fact, we're to flee this judgment as we would flee from fire. Finally, uh, as, as we think, John obviously had this unique role. He, he was this very special role of preparing the people for Jesus. But in, in the same way, we two Christians have this responsibility of showing salvation to others. And I want to ask just very simply, I want you to compare John's gospel proclamation with your own, with our own, in terms of content. So have a look down at verse um, 18. When I first read this, it was a kind of, almost a bit of a surprise. So with many other acceptations, he preached the good news to the people. First reading, it doesn't really seem much like good news, but it is. Salvation from judgment for those who repent, for those who look to Jesus and know his baptism through the spirits. That is good news. How does his gospel proclamation compare compare to to yours, to mine? Now, I'm not suggesting that you walk out and call everyone brood of vipers. John had a specific uh, role as a prophet. But in terms of the content particularly, how does his message compare to ours? I think it's easy to go light on repentance. Trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus. Amen, do that, say that. But you know what? The response to Jesus through Luke, if I was to have to summarize it in one word, it would be repent. Jesus uses it, others use it again and again and again. Actually, we are calling people to a real change of thought, a real change of action, just as John did to you. Let's pray. Father God, we... Thank you for hard warnings, uh, but good warnings. Father, please be at work by your Spirit now. Lord Jesus, be at work in that, it, by your Spirit now in, in bringing that cleansing, in bringing that new life. Father, pray that you'd be at work in us, bringing us to repentance. Please show us areas where that is necessary and empower us to do that. Thank you so much that the Lord Jesus died and paid for every one of those sins. Please, would we look to him and trust him for his glory. Amen.